This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about just about everything. And this one is one of the great music stories that we've ever told, and also one of the great American stories ever told. He did it without any formal music training, and by himself. In 1918, while serving in the U.S. Army, he wrote, God Bless America. But he couldn't sell the song, and so he did what songwriters do when such things happen. He stuck it in a drawer. He dusted the song off in 1938 as Hitler was rising to power in a far-off land and tried to sell it again. This time, there was a buyer. Kate Smith recorded it, and the rest was history. The song became America's unofficial national anthem, right up there with America the Beautiful. Writing one anthem would be enough for most songwriters. But in 1941, he wrote another. White Christmas would go on to sell 100 million copies for Bing Crosby and become one of America's and the world's most beloved Christmas songs, right up there with Silent Night. Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And children listen To hear bells in the snow If you turned Irving Berlin's story into a movie... Critics would say it was too improbable, too ridiculous. It's that American. He was born Israel Berlin on May 11, 1888, one of eight children born in Russia. His father was a cantor in a synagogue where Irving got his musical talents. But being Jewish in Russia in those times was hard. Anti-Semitism was rampant and it was ugly so ugly that the Berlin family was forced to move after their village was destroyed in a violent anti-Semitic pogrom. His family fled religious persecution and came into America, settling in New York in 1893. Like millions before and after them, they didn't come here to change America. They came here to have America change them. And theirs was a family in need of change. According to his biographer, Lawrence Bergreen, Berlin admitted to no memories of his first five years in Russia except for one of his father, quote, lying on a blanket by the side of a road, watching his house burn to the ground. By daylight, the house was in ashes. But there would be more tragedy to come. Indeed, Berlin's early life had more sad stories than the Old Testament, none worse than the loss of his father when he was a mere eight years old. Irving had no choice but to take to the streets of New York to help support his family. And to say those streets were tough would be an understatement, a poverty the likes of which poor people in America today would not even recognize gripped the Lower East Side of New York. 
the neighborhood where young Irving lived. There was no HUD, no food stamps, no Pell Grants, no government help at all. By the time he was 20, Berlin had stumbled upon his life's work. He took a job as a waiter in Chinatown where he discovered that his tips skyrocketed when he hummed various songs of the day. Singing cover tunes a cappella at dinner tables soon turned into a stint at songwriting. He collaborated with friends at first and soon got his break as a staff writer with a music publishing house in New York. His meteoric rise as a songwriter in Tin Pan Alley and then on Broadway started in 1911 with Alexander's Ragtime Band, which would become a hit by various artists, including Bessie Smith and Louis Armstrong. The song topped the charts when Bing Crosby recorded it. Come on in here, come on in here. Oh, you dog. Alexander's Ragtime Band. But ragtime music was not where Berlin's heart was. He wanted to create his own version of American music, one that appealed to the diversity and richness of his adopted nation. He described the audience he was trying to reach with his music, quote, My ambition is to reach the heart of the average American, not the highbrow nor the lowbrow, but that vast intermediate crew which is the real soul of the country. The highbrow is likely to be superficial, overtrained, and supersensitive. The lowbrow is warped and subnormal. My public is the real people. Irving Berlin made good on his mission, creating the richest catalog of popular music by any songwriter in American history. It's been said that writing a song is a bit like giving birth, laborious and miraculous. Irving Berlin gave birth to over 1,500. He credited his productivity to an inborn work ethic. Sal Bernstein, Berlin's publishing manager, observed that, quote, it was a ritual for Irving to write a complete song, words, and music every day. He told anyone who would listen that he did not believe in inspiration. His most successful compositions were the result of work. Few men or women write so many songs, let alone so many standards. Fewer still write songs that become a part of our national identity. And when we come back, more on the remarkable life of Irving Berlin here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return now to Irving Berlin's remarkable story. His catalog includes such standard as Cheek to Cheek, Always, Putting on the Ritz, Heat Wave, Let's Face the Music and Dance, and How Deep is the Ocean. Whenever we think of great poetry, our minds inevitably turn to the masters like Keats, Browning, or Shelley, and never to music. We seem to forget that some of our lyric writers are really fine poets. One such famous poet is Irving Berlin. Judy Garland now brings us one of Mr. Berlin's loveliest poems set to one of his most glorious melodies, How Deep is the Ocean? 
which Judy sings to mothers everywhere. How much do I love you? I'll tell you no lie. How deep is the What special gifts did Berlin have? What special qualities did his songs possess? Quote, his work isn't witty, but it's very down-to-earth, the late great cabaret singer Bobby Short told the Washington Post reporter Tom Shales, and it is amazingly natural. Another songwriter said this, composer Mark Sandrich, his songs didn't have any seams. They didn't feel like anybody wrote them. It was as if Berlin just walked down the street heard them, and they'd been there all along, and all he had to do was just reach up and pluck them out of the air. Berlin did all of his composing and playing without any formal musical training. He could not read or write music, and taught himself to play piano. He played almost entirely in the key of F-sharp, because it was easier for his untrained fingers to play the elevated and well-spaced black keys. He said this about that, quote, The black keys are right there under your fingers. The key of C, ah, that's for people who study music. Berlin loved to boast about his ignorance of music and believed it actually gave him a competitive advantage. Because he didn't know the rules of songwriting, he explained, he was free to violate them. It's a story about so many things, Irving Berlin's life story, hard work, creativity, and America itself. Tell me another country or his story is even possible. The man who gave us White Christmas was Jewish. The man who gave us God Bless America was born in Russia. You can't make that up. The only identity politics Irving Berlin embraced was being an American. No hyphens, no cynicism, no apologies. Just a whole lot of gratitude. In fact, God Bless America was written as a prayer seeking God's blessing and peace for America. It's why it resonated more in 1939 than when he'd written it in 1918. War was on the horizon again, even if Americans didn't fully know it. Over the years, the beautiful opening verse has been scrapped by most singers, though one singer always includes it in his performances. The great Irish tenor, Ronan Tynan. And here it is. So fair as 
from above, from the mountains to the prairies to the oceans, wide with foam. God bless America, my home, sweet home. God bless America, my home, sweet home. In 1940, Berlin established the God Bless America Fund and set aside the song's royalties to the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts of America. It's generated tens of millions of dollars to both groups. And in a rare television appearance in 1967, Irving Berlin came out to center stage onto the Ed Sullivan Show, and he sang the song he wrote, first by himself, and then soon after, with Boy Scouts to the right and Girl Scouts to the left. Irving Berlin's music was a gift to the country that adopted him and transcended all religions, races, and ethnicities. It also transcended musical styles and time, too. Blue Skies reached the top of the charts when it was written in 1927. It made its way back to the charts in 1978 when country music singer Willie Nelson covered it. That's some legs for a song. Blue skies smiling at me Nothing but blue skies do I see. In the 1946 musical Annie Get Your Gun, Annie Oakley lamented falling in love with Frank Butler in the Berlin gem I Got Lost in His Arms. The lyrics read like a poem aimed straight at the heart, as meaningful today as when they were written 70 years ago. I got lost in his arms. And I had to stay It was dark in his arms And I lost my way From the dark came a voice And it seemed to just can't recall but his arms held me fast and it broke the fall and I said to my heart as it foolishly kept jumping all around jumping all around I got lost America got lost in Irving Berlin's music, and from the dark, we can still hear his voice soothing us, healing us. Berlin kept to himself 
and he made no public appearances during the last decade of his life, except for an event to mark his 100th birthday celebration at Carnegie Hall. He died one year later from natural causes at the age of 101. In a letter to Alexander Wolcott half a century ago, Jerome Kern, another great composer of popular music who gave the country showboat, offered what may be the best and last word on the importance of Irving Berlin's work. Quote, Irving Berlin has no place in American music, Kern wrote. He is American music. Irving Berlin's story, here on Our American Story. How I felt as I fell I can't recall But her arms held me fast And it broke the fall And I said to my heart As it foolishly kept jumping all I got lost But look what I This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel. And today, Faith brings us the story of Ed Lattimore, a heavyweight boxer that's worked very hard to get where he is today. Ed recently went back to school after dropping out in his early 20s, but is now pursuing a physics degree. Ed also has served in the National Guard and enjoys writing. He has a handful of self-published books, including one titled Not Caring What Anyone Thinks is a Superpower. Here's Ed's story. So there, there, there are two stories in my mind. It's so funny. I just thought of the first one. The second one is one I always tell. You know, much to my mother's dismay, whether she listens to this or not, I don't care. I remember when I was, um, I was like five, four or five, and I already had a key to come home and let myself in. And I was already able to cook dinner and take care of myself. Because one of the things about growing up in this environment, I mean, you have to be really self-sufficient. And for any other reason, and if you have any type of decent single parent, they're going to work a lot. And my mom did do that too. You know, we, we didn't want for very much. There were there were hard times financially, obviously, but we had most of the things we needed. 
And that was because my mom, mom would work, right? So, so that's one story I think about is how I was already able, you know, most kids don't get, are, are worried about babysitters. I mean, maybe that's a thing about the middle class, but we're just, you know, we got to get home and eat. You know, my mom works till six, seven, eight o'clock at night, maybe later sometimes. So I was always taking care of myself in that respect. On the other end, I think about, and there's a very clear time in my life when I was 11, my mom was out there, you know, just being a fool, you know, sometimes, you know, despite our best best attempts there are parts of us that we cannot escape and my mom has quite a few of those parts so i remember one time at 11 she she was fighting with some woman in the street and the end result was that you know she gets arrested but i remember i remember holding her back saying this is stupid and i'm 11 at this point i'm like this is stupid if you go and do this nothing good is going to come of this and she's all drunk and angry and like let me go let me go fight and i, and I had to let her go right because this time my mom was bigger than me uh, i was in the little kid at 11 and and i remember from that point on i always say i always tell her this and she gets mad when i tell her story but it's, it's the truth i remember at that point on that's when it hit me i was like i'm in this thing alone i can't count on doesn't mean my father was around, but he wasn't really around. I don't know if he was like not interested in young kids or whatever, or maybe he was just gonna let the ghetto sort us out. Maybe we survived, you know, like like in a 300 where they throw the kid into the woods and he comes back and man, I don't know if like that was his plan or whatever. But uh, it was pretty much in that regard, the day-to-day -day life, that's when it hit me. I was like, I'm in this thing alone and I gotta really figure it out because I have surpassed the people who are supposed to be, you know, tasked with my upbringing. I've surpassed them in maturity and capability. Boxing, riding, physics, electrical engineering, radio technician specialist, and a chess player. One could say that Edward Lattimore is almost your modern day Renaissance man. But all his hard work and accomplishments did not happen overnight. Ed did not come from the most opportune of backgrounds. Well, I've grown up, so I'm from, I grew up in, in a public housing project. Uh, people from familiar with that is the projects or the, or the ghetto. So, so I grew up there and that the place is as bad as, as, it, as you know, you can imagine with a lot of crime and poverty and violence in particular. And, and I think one of the things, you know, because I could have turned out a lot worse, but, but what made my situation relatively unique is that my father was in the picture growing up. Like my dad, he didn't live with us. He lived in Philadelphia, but I, had, I, I never, you know, I, I, I never thought my dad wasn't around or wasn't available to speak to and I could talk to him. He'd come and visit and everything. And I really think that helped in terms of a, of a role model. But for the most part, I mean, we're talking a, re a relatively small but, but very influential part of my childhood. Due to his parental situation, he had a lot of self-realizations early on in life. I give my mom, it's very extreme, my, my relationship with my mom. On the one hand, I really credit some of the fundamental habits I have for acquisition of knowledge and my respect for books and and the manners I just generally carry even before I entered the military the manners I generally carry I, I give my mom a lot of that credit I also sometimes when I think about it I get really angry well, I used to. Now I don't. I haven't had that, these issues in almost ten years now, maybe longer. I used to get really angry thinking about like why, why would my mom have me 
and knowing, knowing this circumstance. Like there was no foresight in that regard. So I consider myself doubly fortunate that I was able to to go, okay, I want to go to this school. Because like, you know, my sister went to a very different school and she's in a very different place. And I really believe part of that is because she didn't expose herself to different things. But my mom didn't force her to do that just like she didn't force me. However, she did make a slight suggestion I thought on that suggestion looked around at some of the influences I had and I said okay this is the right thing for me to do which looking back at it I mean I think that's relatively remarkable for for a 13 year old kid to recognize this place is not going to help me do any better in my life and I need to be exposed to something different. Now taking care of yourself takes a lot of energy (laughs) no matter what age but especially when you're just a young kid. Thinking back on it, I remember being tired all the time, you know, (laughs) not very similar, not dissimilar to how things are going right now, but I was tired because, because, okay, I mean, for whatever reason, and and we can think a higher power or, or some genetic disposition, I've always been forward thinking and I knew I was like, okay, so I need to work to to, to make sure I have the ability to experience life. So I, I had a, a few part-time jobs, but I was like, okay, I can. Pr- I'm I'm not bad at sports. I should play a sport because that's going to get me to maybe some colleges to look at me and keep me out of trouble and keep me active. And I'm and I'm studying to them in the hardest classes I can be in. So that I remember being really tired in in high school. Prior to that, I remember it's hard it's hard for me to think oh okay man like every single day sucked like there are some things i remember being really unhappy about and really uncomfortable about but for the most part you had and this is something uh, i don't you know it's funny i don't think about until i think about it you have a frame of reference and without a frame of, you know your frame of reference lets you know what a thing is for me, until I got to high school, I didn't even understand. Like I don't, I, I was so surrounded by things related to the hood. Like I didn't even know what a mortgage was, or that you paid your own utilities. Because when you live in public housing, you know there's no such thing as utilities. Like just basic things that people take for granted. I did not even realize, you know, were things. And I bring that up to say that while I know in retrospect life was not as uh, conducive to development as it could be i don't remember feeling stunted at that point now now in high school that's when it really became a little more clear like i would be in class with these kids and, and I'm, a, I'm a relatively intelligent guy uh, but but i'm sitting here in class going man if only you didn't if i didn't if only i didn't have to to feel exhausted i'd be able to do better you know but 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 i also learned really early on you don't make excuses for anything at all you just go and do it because no one cares how you think how you feel all it's gonna matter at the end of the day is what do you do you know and i and i i'm really happy i don't know where that came from either maybe i, I mean i feel like my mom maybe instilled that in me somehow some way but i never ever made excuses for any of the any of my any any excuses for my performance because of where I was from or what I was dealing with or whether I had an hour bus ride either way to school or I was waking up at four o'clock just to get there and, and to go, you know, work out in the morning with the rest of the kids who were, you know, literally around the corner I had a parent to drop them off, things like that. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from this unique voice. And boy, did he have excuses. Easy ones. 
Didn't lean on him, though. Ed Lattimore's story, here on Our American Stories. And we've been listening to Ed Lattimore's story. He grew up in the projects, realized that in high school, he didn't want to stay there. But it was a lot harder for him than other kids. We pick up with Ed talking about his high school experience. Uh, in the city of Pittsburgh, you can go to another high school based on your interests and or abilities. So I didn't have, so I went to the, the school assigned for where I grew up and the people around me of a similar socioeconomic background from you know, kindergarten to like eighth grade. In the ninth grade, you know, whether it was, you know, foresight on my part or my mom just recognizing who and what I could become, you know, I got to go to a school across town with a very different group of people and a very different set of classes. And all of my good friends are from that era of my life. But is but from prior to that, oh no, I didn't I didn't have any friends really and hang out with kids and when I once I realized you know kind of it wasn't there was nothing out there for me I spent a lot of time playing video games and, and reading books pre so pre-14 really no one post 14 all of my close god friends today well most of them I'll say uh, I met in that era and and it really you know their families really embraced me and I'm so grateful for that that they didn't just see me as some kid from across town that was that was friends with their son or whatever. I mean, these people, I mean, one of the families saved my life, another one, they're responsible. They gave me a place to stay when I ultimately I, I got, you know, thrown out uh, from my home. You know, one family took care of me when I needed some extra money to, to take some placement exams. I mean, so, so the families of my friends when I turned 14, I mean, they really, they're really an, an important part of who I am. I mean, and, and you continue to develop and grow, but I've always, always thought highly of, of all of them, and I have the most respect and love. He mentioned one of his friends saving his life. That, that story, um, I actually, I'm, I'm allergic to tree nuts, and and the, the family, I just happened to eat some nuts there, and then when I woke up and came to, they're the ones who stood, they were in the hospital with me the whole time. I like passed, I woke up in the hospital, I was like, oh, it's, you know, name redacted, uh, family, they're just hanging out. I was like, great, great, great. So, so that's, you know, that's just one story. I mean, they didn't have to do it. They could have just dropped me off at the hospital and my mom come. But she couldn't get there and they, they stayed and, and, and stayed really close. And, and you know, the, these experiences, too, I like to highlight just to, to talk about. Because I remember I remember when my, my mom used to have these, these just outdated um, and effectively racist ideas. And I was like, look, man, I'm at school with, like, white kids. You have to get over this. And it, it went back and forth. And then when that happened, you know, her whole demeanor changed. She's got one of two choices. She can she can continue to be a fool. And I, and I made it pretty clear. And I think that's part of the way I, not, not part of, that is a large reason why I'm so emotionally non-reactive to many things. So she sees how I go out and how I have these good friends and how these friends look at me like a like a family member and her whole and her mindset has to change. It, so so it's change and embrace as opposed to 
I'm going to continue with my old way of thinking and just kind of exile you. And I'm really, I, I hadn't thought about that that experience until just talking to you right now. But that was a really, really powerful time. Really, really good thing. It is amazing to hear his mom's change of heart. A little kindness can go a long way. After graduating from high school, there was still a lot of learned issues that Ed had to work through. The big thing for me coming out of high school at that point in my life is I didn't realize how emotionally unprepared and and, and just fundamentally just wrecked I was as a person. And I think most kids, I mean, I don't think they were as bad as me, but I think most kids are, most kids probably have no idea what they really want to do with their life at 18. And I'm no, I was no different in many ways worse. You know, I went to college and what was more appealing to me was chasing girls and drinking and, and, and staying out and indulging on that side of the college life. So, so predictably, my academics suffered. They suffered to the point where I got put on academic probation for the second semester. And in the third semester, I went back. I just dropped out. I just left. I left because I had started seeing this girl back home. That's what I told myself. But the reality is I wasn't happy. I didn't see any point in going there. I had stopped playing football. I just really lost interest in, in the whole university experience and wanted to be back home and, and close to what I knew. Because that's what it was. It was about getting back to something familiar that I knew. What I take from it, I always tell this to people. You can change your life at any time. You just got to be willing to leave behind who you were. And that is effectively what I did. I mean, I stopped drinking. I thought my drinking was causing a big big problem. I, I stopped that entirely. Which in turn changed my entire socialization structure for the better. And I got with a really solid, wonderful person and her influence on me and that has shaped me and helped me develop again into the type of person I want to be. I started focusing on my writing and really getting into that along with, you know, school and science. You know, sometimes I'm exhausted, but that's helped me develop and continue to grow because, you know, because I... I remember, I remember thinking very clear. I was just like, if you continue on this path, you're going to always said, I'm going to turn 33 regardless. That was always the number in my mind. I don't know why I chose that. I said, I'm going to turn 33 regardless. Am I going to turn 33 with the ability, you know, to make, to make 90 or 100K a year? Am I going to turn 33 mad that I got to show up to a, to an eight hour shift at T-Mobile? And, and every time I thought about that or oh, I would just go, you know what you got to do? You got to make changes. So, I mean, I really just changed so much stuff. Changed, it was really abrupt. I mean, I think it really is catching up to me. Not catching up, but sometimes I sit and think and realize when, when I when I look at what all the things I don't do anymore that I used to do and all the new fun habits I have of how different things are. But if I, if I didn't have the courage to just kind of look and go, okay, the future's coming. I always tell my mom this. The future's coming, uh, whether you're prepared for it or not. But the cool thing about it being the future is you get to prepare for it. If you don't know yourself, uh, it really doesn't matter what's what what abilities you have or what opportunities come your way, because I, I'm a big believer in the in the cliche: a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And and everyone's got a weak link, but the trick is, do you know your weak links? And if you know them, do you know how to avoid them? For me, my weak link is fixation. 
And I, I never really understood that until my girl said something about it one day with the way I drink coffee. And imagine that kind of mentality with alcohol. You know, and I won't have coffee for a while, but the point is, you know, you, coffee is a lot different than alcohol and how it affects your body and your decisions. So knowing that I said the first thing I have to do, the very first, and it wasn't the first thing. It should have been the first thing. The second thing I did when I got back from AIT, I was like, nope, I'm done. Having a personality that is all or nothing can be detrimental. But for Ed, he has learned to use that focus for his benefit. I was talking to a good friend of mine about this very same point. He posts on Twitter, he says, giving up drinking for the week. Every, every, you know, every, other, every other week, every other month, it's some amount of time giving up drinking. To which I said to him, I was like, well, man, well, why though? Like, either either go all in or stay, either go into the deep end or stay out of the pool entirely, right? To which he responds so funny, he goes, that's silly. That'd be like having coffee for every meal. To which I responded, have you seen how I drink coffee? And that's when I realized I don't know how to relate to the concept of moderation with people. We have to learn to navigate the thing that will make us great. Or the thing that will make us fail. And that's when we will be most likely to succeed. One of the, the biggest search terms that directs people to my site, not drinking. <laughs> because of the articles I've wrote about my experiences not drinking and becoming sober in that journey. And imagine how selfish it would be of me to have not wrote that experience down. I get messages. I still get messages where people go, I, I not drank for one year. I've not drank for six months. I tried sobriety out because of you, because of you, because of what you wrote. Not because of something I spoke or not because uh, someone put me on a billboard. No, because of my words. And I keep working on my writing. You know, a lot of people don't, for whatever reason, it is so depressing that people who would be great writers and great artists and have a great story to connect with people do not. I tell everyone they should start a blog because I could say the exact same thing and have the exact same message. And they could hear that exact same message from 1,000 other people a thousand different ways. And it's not until something about your background or your story or who you're from or, or where you're from or who you are, they read it, that 100, that 1,000, the first time they read it and go, you know what? I really get it. I'm going to make that change. You know, because I'm sure anyone who stopped drinking because of my articles had thought about it before. I, I'm sure I didn't come in and just magically persuade them. But something about who I am and how I wrote made them go about it and made them finally try it and they got a benefit of it and for, you know that's all you can do as i said before ed is definitely an outlier but it's always inspiring to hear stories of those who have made the most of their circumstances and thanks as always faith and what a great story and thank you ed Lattimore. the future's coming whether you prepare for it or not and it's so well said. And what a voice. And we want to hear more from him. And we will hear more from him. Ed Lattimore's story and so many young people's story living in such circumstances around this country here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything from sports to the arts to the sciences to history, and, well, we love comedy. We love funny people, and we've done a bunch of hours on so many great people in the business. And now for the hour, Joey Cortez brings us the story of a man who's worked more jobs than anyone, well, we've known, and whose current profession and accomplishments Well, it's something most of us could only dream of. Take it away, Joey. Men get nervous. They really, men get nervous when you get near the family jewels. In baseball, I don't know if you know this or not, in 1871 in baseball, men start wearing the cup to protect the family jewels. In 1971, it became mandatory in baseball to wear a helmet. (laughs) It took men 100 years to realize The brain is important also. (laughs) Women are always saying, you men couldn't stand the pain of childbirth. Men could get pregnant, they won't want disability from the moment of conception. Couldn't stand that pain. Women have no idea the pain a man experiences when he gets a good swift kick in the nuts. You know what I'm talking about, guys? Because I have heard women, a year after childbirth, say, it might be nice to have another baby. Have you ever heard a man say, might be nice to have another good swift kick in the nuts? A comedian with an extraordinary career, making 61 appearances on The Tonight Show, and a favorite guest and fill-in host for David Letterman. Never did a kid from the south side of Chicago ever imagine becoming friends and colleagues with the likes of David Letterman, Smokey Robinson, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, Tony Bennett, and Frank Sinatra. The very people he only fantasized about during his first few jobs as a kid. In all these taverns that I shined shoes in, there were eight in my neighborhood. Everyone I'd go into, Frank Sinatra was on every jukebox. You know, as was Dean Martin and, 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 of course, Sammy Davis Jr. And so I was listening to the Rat Pack as a little boy while I was shining shoes. That's how I first came, became introduced to their music. Years later, when I came out of the service, after I went in the Navy when I was 17 and came out when I was 21, I went back to tending bar. I worked construction and I attended bar. While I was tending bar in these, in these taverns, of course, Sinatra was on all the jukeboxes. Little did he know that he would become one of the closest people to Frank Sinatra near the end of his life. When I first started touring with Frank Sinatra, there was no question that he was the boss. And then as years went by, he became like a pal, a buddy. We hung out till dawn, you know, night after night after night. He never went to bed till the sun came up. You know, when I'd stay at his home, some nights he'd come and get me at three o'clock in the morning in the bungalow I was staying in on his compound and say, let's take a ride, Tommy. And we'd go riding all around the desert and he'd you know, open up to me and we, we were buddies. And then later in life, he became like a father to me, more like a father figure. He started giving me advice and, um, and I knew that he knew the end was near. And so he was passing on sometimes things that he thought that I should know. And, uh, and so and a lot of the lessons I've learned in life came from, from being with him in the wee hours of the morning, uh, hearing his stories of his childhood and some of the things he might have changed if he could have. Comedian Tom Dreesen. From Shining Shoes 
to becoming one of Frank Sinatra's most intimate friends during the last few chapters of his life. Tom Dreesen's storied life and career began in a south suburb of Chicago, Harvey, Illinois, where he learned from Chicago's best comics, everyday, hardworking people in the comedy havens of its time, well before comedy clubs were even a thing. That's right, the local bar. One of the taverns I went to was where my mom was a bartender and my uncle was behind the bar, a man who was my mother's sister's husband. His name was Frank Polizzi, and he told jokes behind the bar. And I was always fascinated by the fact that this man, you know, I would watch him tell these jokes behind the bar, that with his vocabulary, his vernacular, and his inflection, and his timing, he could tell a story and cause this sound to come out of everybody's body, this laughter that would fill the air like electricity and unite everybody in the room. All of a sudden, everybody was one in unison in laughter. And I was fascinated by that process and used to like to tell his jokes, you know, many that should not be told on a Catholic school playground, you know. But it, it, it's what first got me interested, so I always loved telling jokes. But little Tommy Dreesen, he wasn't there for the comedy. He was there because he had to be there to help put food on the table for his family. As a little boy growing up poor, I had eight brothers and sisters. We lived in a shack. Five of us slept in one bed. So we had no bathtub and no shower and no hot water. It was a rat-infested, roach-infested shack. You know, and it wasn't during the Depression. I'm not that old, you know. Uh, so everybody else seemed to be doing quite well. We, we didn't have meals like other kids did. We didn't have a breakfast, a lunch, and a dinner. But as far back as I can remember, I was out selling uh, newspapers at the Harvey Tribune. And, and when I was, you know, in first grade, you know, I, I was helping my brother sell newspapers. My sister Darlene helped us too. And then by the time I was eight, I was shining shoes and selling newspapers. And so that's what it was like. And all of this was done to help feed my brothers and sisters. But Tom, he doesn't regret his childhood at all. My core values came from that town where people felt that you only deserved in life what you worked for. I learned work ethic, and, and, and I learned a responsibility. There's a sign on my desk right now that says, if it is to be, it's up to me. You know, I learned that as a child, that, that if, if I was going to get anything, I had to go out and get it. That's all I ever understood growing up, that you could get anything in your life if you worked hard for it, but that's all you deserved is what you worked for. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, a part of our American Dreamers series. If it is to be, it's up to me. It should be on every wall of every kid in this country. More of Tom Dreesen's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue Our American Dreamers story and our series with Tom Dreesen's story. Let's continue. Tom Dreesen had quite a rough childhood, and yet... I don't regret any of that. And why would he? It made him into the man he is today. Hardworking, family-oriented, compassionate, a characteristic exemplified through his attitude towards his father's alcoholism. You know, um, that you learn to hate the illness but love the man. My father, Walter Dreesen, wasn't a, a bad guy. He just was an alcoholic. He found the drug of his choice, and it was alcohol. And, and so, you know, money, money was scarce. Um, I remember as a little boy growing up, when I was in eighth grade, my older brother Glenn bought me a watch. It was a Crawford 17 jewel watch for my eighth grade graduation. And I never had a watch before. And I loved that watch, you know. You know and anyhow, um, about a year went by or so, and I couldn't find my watch. And I kept looking all over my watch. And I said to my mom and dad, who were in the kitchen, I said, I can't find my watch. And my mom put her head down, but she looked at my dad. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he put his head down, and I knew he pawned my watch. And I realized how bad he was feeling, but I didn't get angry. I, I started covering for him. I said, oh, I didn't wear that watch that much anyhow. It didn't matter. I didn't wear it that much anyhow, because I didn't want him to feel bad. And I, I thought about that a lot in years to come. When I had children, <clears throat> if I ever would have pawned one of my children's watches for drugs or alcohol, I don't think I could have lived with myself. But again, <clears throat> when you're an alcoholic or when you're a drug addict, that's your lord and master. And remember that funny guy? The bartender? His uncle? Yeah, well, little Tommy would learn something about him that would turn his world upside down. When I was growing up, I, I had these eight brothers and sisters, and they, they mostly were blonde hair and blue-eyed, you know. And I didn't think I looked like them a lot. <clears throat> I looked a lot like my cousins, you know. Uh, and my mother was a bartender in a bar that... Uh, with her brother-in-law, and he owned the bar, and my mother was a bartender there for years, off and on. Now, as a little boy, wherever I went, people would say to me, hey, Polizzi, how you doing, Polizzi? I'd say, my name isn't Polizzi, my name is Dreesen. And they'd say, oh, I'll be down, you know, because I looked a lot like this guy, Frank Polizzi, you know, who was my uncle, my, my mom's sister's husband. And I emulated him, you know, I just thought the world of him. But as I got older, when I got around 13 years old, I started realizing where babies came from, I didn't want to think that my mom and dad did this, let alone my mom and my uncle. You know, so I, I had this feeling that he was my biological father, but then I would crush that, uh, just push that feeling down inside me, you know, and um, just didn't want to believe that that ever happened. But by the time I was 15, I really believed it because I really looked like him, and I looked like my two cousins, his sons. And he was a real tough Sicilian. He took nothing from nobody, no time. You know, he stood up to the mafia in our town. He was a tough, tough Sicilian. He had a great sense of humor, but he was a man to be feared. Now, I was worried how I was going to approach him with this subject that I had, but I went for a walk with him. And he said, what does he want to talk about? And I told him, I said, I think I'm your son. And he was stunned. He said, why do you think that? I said, because I don't look like my brothers. I look like your sons. And people always mistake me for a policy. He said, well, it's true. 
He said, and your mother and I had an affair, and you're the product of it. He said, now you can go tell the world. It would ruin your mother's marriage, and it would ruin mine, but that's, that's your prerogative. And I said, I don't want to do that. I just needed to know. An alcoholic father, an alcoholic mother, an admired uncle later revealed a biological father who worked in a tavern. It's no wonder what little Tommy Dreesen dreamed to be when he grew up. When I was growing up, that's what I wanted to do one day was own a tavern because that's where my dad spent all of his money. I thought they were the most successful people in the world because I couldn't see outside my environment. I understand when a young kid in the ghetto said he wants to grow up to become a pimp or a drug pusher, he's never seen a more successful man in his life. You know, he, that, that person, that pimp or that drug pusher has got a new car and wads of $100 bills in his pocket. So that kid thinks that's what a successful man does. Tommy, though, did what many young men do to rise above the depths of their childhood torments. He joined the Navy. And you might be surprised to learn what Tom considers to be one of the greatest gifts he received during his service. I was a high school dropout when I went in the Navy. And uh, I ended up getting a high school diploma from the Navy, the GED. And, and uh, I later went to junior college nights. But what, what helped me a great deal was uh, aboard ship, I used to read like any other 17-year-old boy. You read all these sex novels and all that stuff because you're a young, um, full of testosterone boy. So I was reading all these novels, and this, this older black man, Washington, said to me, if you're going to read something, why don't you read something that will improve your mind? So he bought me this book by Leon Uris, Exodus. And it was an interesting book, and then he questioned me afterward, what did you learn from it and everything. From that, I start reading positive mental attitude books, all these books that can improve your mind. Because I grew up in such a negative environment where the parents were alcoholic, and everybody in that neighborhood mostly were you know, you were a man when you could walk into a bar and buy a round of drinks for everybody in the bar. I had that tavern mentality in my head. And so I, I couldn't think outside of my environment. So these books helped me believe that I could become more than just a bartender. And through this reading, Tom learned something that he wouldn't completely understand until he had his first child. I kept running across these two words, unconditional love. And I couldn't understand for the life of me how you could have unconditional love, you know. But it was two words that I, that I just, you know, loved reading about, unconditional love. And then when I was married and my daughter Amy, they handed me my daughter Amy. And I looked at that child and I, all of a sudden, I understood what unconditional love meant. I knew I was going to love this child all my life and for till, till the day I died. I just knew that no matter what this child did, I would love this child. And to this day, this daughter, when she walks into the room, and she's a grown woman in her 40s, <laughs> when she walks in the room, she's got children of her own. But when she walks in the room, I light up just like I did the first time I saw her. My heart is filled with unconditional love. Tom, he finished his service, got married, and at times worked more than two to three jobs as a construction worker, a bartender, a photographer, a life insurance salesman. The list goes on. But that wasn't enough for Tom. As you've heard countless times on this program, all great men and women 
don't just simply settle down and relax. They do more great things. Tom joined the United States Junior Chamber, also known as the JCs. In those days, they were young men of action. They worked in the community, attacking all the problems of the community, running all sorts of functions to raise money to fight the ills in, in that community. But in doing so, they taught you leadership training. They taught you how to speak in front of an audience. They taught you how to serve on a committee. Then they taught you how to be a chairman of that committee. And they taught you how to, as a chairman, how to delegate authority and how to accomplish things, get things done. So I was very active in, in the, the JCs in community affairs. And little did Tom know that his work as a JC would spark his career in comedy. One of the problems affecting our community in those days were young kids getting involved in drugs. So I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor. It's a concept I had. I wasn't in show business, I was selling life insurance. But I always had a propensity to make people laugh. And so I thought we'd get the children laughing and then plant the seeds of why we came there. So helping me with this project was a young black man named Tim Reed. And to show you how fate would have it, I already had a white guy, a guy named John DeBoer, that was gonna help me with this project. And that night that I was proposing running a drug education program to the chapter, this the young black man, Tim Reed, came up and said, he's a new member, just joined that night, said, I'd like to work with you on this project. And I said, thank you, but I already got a guy. The next morning, this friend of mine, John DeBoer, called me and said, I can't do that project, I got a new job. I said, oh gee, what was that black guy's name? Oh yeah, Tim Reed. And if you're thinking to yourself, I think I've heard that name before. Well, that's probably because you have. Most millennials know him as the father from the hit childhood TV series, Sister, Sister. And most older folk know him from his role as the Venus flytrap in the popular TV show, WKRP in Cincinnati. And when we come back more on the life of Tom Dreesen and those books, boy, and the Navy, he gave him a picture of something better and more beautiful with his life, and he seized on it. And when we come back, you're going to see just how Tom Dreesen and this man, Tim Reed, well, how their unlikely partnership kicks off their careers in comedy. Tom Dreesen's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we continue with our American Dreamers series, Tom Dreesen's Life. We left off with Fates bringing together Tom Dreesen and Tim Reed to start a drug education program in poor and middle-class communities of Chicago. Him and I worked on what we were going to do in the classrooms, and the first day that I went in the classroom with him, I realized, oh, what a blessing because in the classroom were young black and white children. And when they saw us come into the classroom, a young black guy and a young white guy, we immediately got their attention because the black and white students identified with us right away. And we became an, uh, an instant hit. We would joke off of one another and get the kids laughing. 
and the program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries. JCs use it in, through their publications as a model program on how to teach drug education at an elementary school level. And then one day after about eight months of doing this, a little eighth grade girl leaving a classroom uh, at a school called St. John's in Harvey, Illinois. She was leaving the classroom, she stopped and she said to both of us, you guys are funny, you ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us because no one had ever done that before. And so, they did. And because at the time, comedy clubs weren't really a thing, Tim and Tom gave it a go at a local jazz club and flopped. But they didn't let a little failure get in their way. So the next day we went and I got a huge laugh of something I had written. And it, again, it was like an epiphany. I said, wow, this is what I want to do. It just came over me like, oh, I want to be a stand-up comedian. And I got up the next morning and I went to church. It was a Saturday morning. There was no one there. I knelt down and I prayed. I said, God, if you let me make my living as a comedian, I'll never ask for anything more. I promise you, I'll do charities, I'll do everything. And, and the thought that I could make a living as a stand-up comedian, make a living making people laugh, it overwhelmed me. And so, at the height of the Vietnam War, racial tensions rising, societal unrest building, they said, why not? Let's do it. We were turning the nation as America's first black and white comedy team at a time when the Vietnam War was raging. I had just gotten out of the service. Students were protesting all of America. African Americans were rioting in every major city, in Compton, in Watson, in, in Chicago, in Philadelphia, in Detroit. The largest riot of all was in Harvey, Illinois, where I was born and raised, where, I, where we started out as a comedy team. In the middle of all this, we were going across the land trying to make people laugh. Now, we weren't going across the land preaching. We weren't preaching unity or get together. We just wanted people to laugh. But it turns out, a little laughter goes a long way. I don't know how many times we would go somewhere during this racial tension and that a young white kid or a young black kid, and they'd come up with the same story time and time again. They'd say, the white kid would say, you know, uh, I, after the show, they'd say, you know, I, I've got a black friend that I want to reach out to. Uh, and, 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 and if I do, the white guys are just going to wear me out wear me out if I have a black friend. And a black kid would come up and say, you know, I got a white friend and I want to be friends with him, but the brothers are going to, uh, the brothers will wear me out if I, if I reach out to the white kid. But watching you and Tim today, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. That happened to Tim and I more than you'll ever know, told differently each time, but basically it was watching you and Tim up there having so much fun together, making people laugh, made me reach out to, to my buddy of another color. And, and uh, that's the most gratifying thing of it all. Not everyone, though, appreciated the biracial act. In those days, see, you know, racism is strange because if there was a black guy who hated white people, hated him with a passion, he wasn't mad at me. He was mad at Tim for being with me. And vice versa. Tom says that he was often called a Negro lover, and Tim, an Uncle Tom, by people of their own race. But according to Tom, it wasn't just everyday people who rooted against them. 
it's a strange thing. You know, even in this supposedly, this liberal Hollywood, I don't think they wanted us to succeed. I just, when I look back, I think sometimes that we frightened the hell out of them because we said it can work. We didn't say that in our act, but they saw us performing, having fun together, and it was working. It was working and we we're making people laugh. And if that's the case, then where's the narrative that this is a horrible place to live? This country is a horrible place to live. If these two guys can get along, why can't anybody get along? And therein kills the narrative that we're a racist country, that it won't work, that if we work together. For some reason, that always stuck in my mind that I didn't realize there were people that really didn't want us to succeed. Something that one of Tom's close friends, who was also in show business, warned he and Tim from the very start. He said, you know they're going to try to separate you. He said, Tim, you know they're going to go up to you and say, you don't need that white boy. He said, Tom, they're going to come to you. You don't need that, brother. What are you doing with him? He said, it's called divide and conquer. Some people can't stand to see this kind of unity that you guys are, are projecting whether you like it or not. You know. So, you know, it's a shame because I thought that we were going to become America's greatest comedy team. That was my dream and my hope. When Tim decided to split the team up, it was worse than a broken marriage for me because all my hopes and dreams were in that six years. I wanted to be in show business and I thought Tim and Tom were going to become America's greatest comedy team. And when that didn't happen, it broke my heart. I was devastated. You know, my ex-wife wanted me to get out of show business once and for all, get a job in a factory and bring a check home every Friday night and bring some stability into our life. And I, I went to the corner bar where I used to attend bar and my, it was called a Sulky Inn. And my buddy Jimmy Lepore was sitting bar behind the bar and I'm sitting there and you know, people will buy you, I had two beers in front of me and people will buy you a, a, a drink and hey, give Tommy a drink down and they put a little shot glass in front of you. So I had like two of those in front of me plus two beers in front of me. But I'm just thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I, and I thought, you know, I was always real good at, 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 at alternatives saying, okay, I'm not painted into a corner here. What are my options? And I said, I can get another black guy and do the same act or I could go it alone and become a stand-up comedian, or I could get a job in a factory and give up this hope of ever being in show business. And those are my options. And I sat there contemplating, and I thought about it. I said, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going I'm to work on material, and I'm going to go out and do stand-up on my own. And I made up my mind that's what I wanted to do. And then I remembered a book I had read, Positive Mental Attitude, by W. Clement Stone, and it said, if you know what it is you want to do in life, if you, know, if you want to do something with a passion, and it's a noble endeavor, search your life and see if there's anything in your life that can deter you from that noble endeavor and get it out of your life. And I thought, what could stop me if I wanted to be a stand-up comedian? I thought, my wife, no, she couldn't stop me if that's what I wanted to do, nothing. And I thought, alcohol, I love to drink, like my family did too, I love to drink. I said, you can't have hangovers and go out and and do shows and write material and, and all. So I pushed the beers across the bar. And my buddy came up to me and he said, I said, I quit. He said, you're through for the night, huh, Tom? I said, no, I quit. 
He said, for the night. I said, I quit drinking. He went, yeah, right. And I never touched a drop after that till after I did the Tonight Shows and, and, and became successful. And then one night I went out and I, I ordered a beer and it just didn't taste like it used to. And so I, I, I don't drink anymore today. Myself up and get back in the race. That's life. That's life. And, and it's Tom Treason's life we're talking about. Rise from Chicago, the tough times, to being on the stage with the biggest to the greatest talent the world knew and knows. This is Lee Habib. Tom Dreesen's story continues here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We continue with the final segment of Our American Dreamers story this week. And we've done every kind, folks, from, well, Bernie Marcus's story, the founder of Home Depot, straight through to Al Pacino's. And now we continue with Tom Dreesen's story. As Tom put the drink down, he packed up his bags and moved to Los Angeles, couch surfing and even living out of a car for a month while performing for free at local clubs and begging to get on what is known as the training ground for America's most famed comedians, the Comedy Store, a first-of-its-kind comedy club on Sunset Boulevard. Tom finally got a chance, became a regular act, and perfected his craft along the likes of Billy Crystal, David Letterman, and Robin Williams. Impressive, right? Well, maybe not. See, when in the comedy community in 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah? You ever been on Johnny Carson? If you had been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. You might want to be one. You might going to be one, but you want one now because everybody in America believed that one appearance on The Tonight Show, your life changed, and it did. Freddie Prince did one appearance on The Tonight Show. The next day, he got a sitcom. So it was a very powerful show. Even though there were other shows we could do stand-up on, none of them launched your career like The Tonight Show. 15 to 20 million people watched that show every night. There was no cable television in those days. So that was a show you tried to get on. So in the comedy community, that's all everybody talked about. Want to get to The Tonight Show. And as Tom tells it, he kept pestering Carson's talent scouts to come see him perform at the Comedy Store. And finally... When one of those scouts came by, Tom made his break. He said, good, you're on next week. And now, for a week, I couldn't hardly sleep at night. This is the biggest break in your career. As I said, 20 million people watch that show. Agents, managers, talent scouts, casting people, everybody watched that show. So for a week, I could hardly sleep. And I get there, and they put me in makeup, and they, and they take me to my dressing room. And then as later in the show, they bring you down to the green room. And then they came in the green room and said, we ran out of time. You got to come back next week. So I wait another whole week and go through the same procedure, get there. And I get, they put me in makeup and they take me up to my dressing room. Then they bring me down to the green room and they bumped me again. They did this to me three times in a row. 
And now I haven't hardly eaten in a month and slept, you know, finally the fourth time I get there and I go into makeup and I'm in makeup and a producer came in. He said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. And now a lump gets in your throat about the size of a grapefruit and you know you're going on. And so I, I, I'm in the green room and they come and get me and they take that long walk from the green room to get behind the curtain of the Tonight Show. And they, you know, you walk through there and, and uh, you're standing in the back of the curtain and the coordinator says, are you okay? I say, I'm fine, I'm fine. He walks away <clears throat> and now you, you're trying to remember your material and you're panicking because the music is playing, Doc Severinsen's playing during commercial break. And all of a sudden the music stops and you know you're back live and your heart stops. And then you hear Johnny say, we're back now. And I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest is making his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Would you welcome Tom Dreesen? And they open up the curtain and you walk out into these bright lights like you're in an operating room and, and you can't see the audience, they're like shadows. And you hit your spot on the floor, there's a green tape on the floor. And you hit that spot and now the, the applause ends. Thank you very much. I'm a little bit upset. And now you do your first joke and you did my first joke. And I got it out and got a laugh, and then I, I did my second joke and it got a laugh, and then I got the third joke and it got a laugh. Then my fourth joke, I hear Johnny and Ed McMahon laughing behind me. Now I'm on a roll. Now I get seven or eight applause, and, and, and it just was a killer set. And I close with saying, You've been a wonderful audience, and show business is a tough life. This is my first appearance on The Tonight Show, so if you liked me, just if you liked me, and you're Protestant, say a prayer. If you're Catholic, light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub, tell them about me, will you please? And, and the audience roared and applauded, Johnny roared, and, and I took my bow and I walked through the curtain and Craig Tennis came running around the corner. He said, go back, go back, you gotta go back. I said, go back, go back and talk to Johnny. He said, no, don't go talk to Johnny, don't go talk to him. just go back and take a bow. So I went back through the curtain and, and the audience kept applauding and, and Johnny gave me that little circle with his hand like, good job, you know. And that launched his career. Represented by William Morris, signed by CBS, featured on the most popular shows on television, Tom Dreesen became a household name. I was doing all these shows, but there was one show I wanted to do, was called Sammy and Company. Sammy Davis Jr. Hi. had his own talk show. And I had seen okay. Sammy perform years before that, and I just thought he was the most extraordinary entertainer I'd ever seen, so I wanted to do his show. And so they finally got me on that show, and I did all this material on Sammy's show, this six-minute routine about growing up in a black neighborhood and playing basketball on an all-black basketball team. And, and I did all these jokes that just broke Sammy up. And he said to me, I'm going to take you on the road with me. And he did. And he took me all over the country. And we were appearing in Chicago at the Mill Run Theater. And he said to me, have you ever worked Las Vegas? And I said, no. And he said, well, you opened there in January with me. And so now in January, I'm, January 1977, I'm driving down the, the, the main drag of Las Vegas, the Strip, and there on the marquees, Sammy Davis Jr. and Tom Dreesen, I was just overwhelmed. I you know, never dreamed that I'd ever be in, you know, I mean, I did dream that I'd be in Vegas, but I never dreamed to be with Sammy Davis Jr. And it was just amazing. So I, I, I performed with him for two weeks. And one of the amazing stories, or one of the stories I'll always remember, was that I brought in some of the guys from my own neighborhood that I grew up with to come to Las Vegas and be with me. And it was a buddy of mine, Sammy Eubank, and another buddy of mine, Mike Crowder, and my other friend, Tommy Johnson. Uh, and Tommy's no longer with us. He died a couple of years ago. But we were street buddies together. Him and I, you know, we, we, from the time I was a little boy, and then we set pins and bowling alleys together. He went in the paratroopers when I went in the Navy. 
and we remained friends. When I came out of the service, off and on, I would split up with my wife. We had lived together, you know. We were just a good street buddy. But anyhow, one of the days after the sh we got up in the morning, and we're going out, and, and uh, we're going to roam up and down the strip. And I looked around, and Tommy was gone. And I looked, and now he was looking at the marquee that said Sammy Davis Jr. and Tom Dreesen. And he was, this is a tough guy who was in the 101st Airborne. You know, just a tough street guy. And tears were rolling down his cheeks. And I looked at him, I said, Tommy, what the hell? What's wrong with you? He said, you don't get it, do you? I said, what? He said, you don't get it, Dries. They, he always called me Dries. He said, you don't get it, Dries. I said, what? He said, if your name is up on that marquee, our name is on that marquee. The whole neighborhood is on that marquee. And, and it choked me up, you know. And, and I said, yeah, yeah, well, let's go, let's go get something to eat. Let's take a walk, you know. But this, this was a big deal to him. Most of us never thought we were ever going to get out of that neighborhood. You know, it just, it's something that happens to you that you think you're going to live there, work there, and die there, you know. But it's, it's a moment I'll never forget. And not long after, Tom Dreesen would have the opportunity to open up for the king of show business. After I toured with Sammy Davis Jr. for about three years, I was touring with different artists around the country, including Smokey Robinson, my dear friend. We were working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe, and Frank Sinatra was appearing at Harrah's, two doors away from Caesars in Lake Tahoe, and I wanted to see his show. So one night after my show, I just bolted off the stage, didn't even change out of my stage clothes, and I was running into the showroom when the vice president of Harrah's Hotel was standing out in front of the showroom with a big heavyset guy with a cigar. And I didn't want to miss the opening because I, I had seen Frank once before, and to watch Frank Sinatra walk out to an audience, it was electrifying. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank Sinatra. He created more excitement walking to the microphone than most people created with their whole act. Just the audience would go wild when he walked out on the stage, and I didn't want to miss that entrance. And so I was running in the showroom when Holmes Henderson called me over. Tommy, come here. And I reluctantly went over, and he said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. He introduced me to this big heavyset guy with the scar. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen. Well, I recognized the name. Mickey was Frank Sinatra's lawyer and managed his career and also a powerful guy in Hollywood. So he said, Holmes Hendrickson said, Mickey, I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he'd heard that a million times. And he winked at the vice president and I caught the wink. He said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 And he started laughing. He said, I like this kid. And then a week later, I got a call, uh, you know, saying, would you like to work with Frank Sinatra at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City for one week? I said, oh, yeah, sure. So they set the date. And I went in. I figured I'll get my picture taken with him, hang it in every bar back in Harvey, Illinois, and, and uh, say that I met Frank Sinatra. But the second night I was with him, he and his wife took me out to dinner, and he said, uh, in the middle of the meal, I can remember like it was yesterday, he set his knife and his fork down. He said, I like your material, and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me, if you're interested. And I didn't say, well, let me check my calendar. I said, yeah, sure. And, and it turned into, you know, 14 years of 45, 50 cities a year, and a friendship that, that I'll, I'll never forget. From humble beginnings, to a successful career in Hollywood. One of the few men deemed worthy enough to perform with America's most beloved stars, Tom Reeson.
an American dreamer. And great job on that, Joey. And what a story. That's just one of my favorites. That's right up there with that Mario Andretti story. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear that one. And Dawn LaFrida. And you've never heard of her, but when you hear her story, not everybody has to be a rich, famous star to live the American dream. Starts with one Denny's at the age of 16. She's a waitress. She owns her first Denny's at 21. Owns 75 now, folks. Tom Dreesen's story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.